As you're seated, we have a time in our service to lift up our needs and desires to the Lord, a prayer of intercession where we intercede for ourselves uh, through the Spirit as well as one another. Let us go to the Lord and pray together. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment and this time that you would gather us together to pray for the needs of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout this earth and the earth itself. We pray, O oh Lord, for our own civil government that you've installed over us. We thank, O oh Lord, this uh, morning of the House and Senate that are a part of our federal government and the laws that they bring forth within the government. We pray, O oh Lord, for our congressmen and our senators. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bestow upon them wisdom and mercy as they lead in the realms that they are in. We pray, O oh Lord, that the word that is written upon their heart, the law of God itself, would bring forth the fruit, O oh Lord, of laws that would promote the peace and prosperity and, and the justice uh, of, of your kingdom even here on earth. We pray, O oh Lord, that by their rule that all Americans would see prosperity and that by their rule, O oh Lord, that we would live as the church here in the country uh, prosperous prosperously. We pray also, O Lord, for the mission of the church. We thank, O Lord, of the Call family as they serve in Belize. We pray, O Lord, for their mission and work as they seek to evangelize the people there, but also their work of planting churches. We pray, O Lord, that you are with the Call family even now, that you remind them of your grace and mercy, that you give them the zeal of witness as they seek to bring Christ throughout the world as it is in Believes, we pray, O oh Lord, that their ministry would see prosperity, prosperity in number, but also, O oh Lord, prosperity in growth and faithfulness and spirituality within the church there. We pray, O oh Lord, that you uplift the call family, that you provide for them, O oh Lord, the needs that they have even now. But we also pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost, whether they be in Belize or Illinois where we reside, we pray, O oh Lord, that there would be a softening of heart within our land. We think of the many within our own state, O oh Lord, who do not know you, who have uh, co-opted the secularism of our own world as their own religion. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would soften the hearts and minds of the people of Illinois and, and that you would use gospel ministry, O oh Lord, to preach the gospel to a people that are dead and dying even in this world. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would use our church, but many churches throughout our state to bring revival in our land. And in that revival, O oh Lord, a greater faithfulness to your scriptures, word, and mission. We also pray, O oh Lord, for our own church. We think of the youth this morning. You've blessed this congregation, O oh Lord, with many, many, many youth. And we pray, O oh Lord, that through our various ministries, well, whether that be through the worship service or Sunday school or as we seek to kick off more here in the summer, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless our youth. That even in the midst of the temptation as we just prayed for the lost with secularization, we pray, O oh Lord, for them. The difficulty of being a Christian in our own culture seems to ramp up more and more. And in their lifetime, O oh Lord, it might be unbearably difficult. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that your peace would reign upon our youth and our children that your peace would be felt in their lives from day to day, that anxiety might not overwhelm them, but the joy and peace of Christ would. So we pray, O oh Lord, that you give us wisdom as a congregation to nurture our children well, to admonish them well in the Lord and to rear them in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We also pray, O oh Lord, for those who are downcast. We think of Dan Ostendorf, who's down with a stomach bug, and many others, O oh Lord, who are unable to be here for various reasons. We pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would condescend and be with them. But also, we think of our broader church in the Presbyterian Church. We think, O oh Lord, of the Keller family, of Harry Reader's family. We pray, O oh Lord, that by their deaths, by Tim Keller's and Harry Reader's deaths, that you'd be, O oh Lord, as they are absent from the body and present with you, but you'd be with their families. That you'd be with Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Briarwood in Birmingham. That you would send a spirit of comfort to them, to their congregations, to their families, but also throughout the PCA as well. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the ministry of these dear saints that have longed to be with you, who now are. But be with the church, O oh Lord, as they mourn, as we mourn the deaths of these great men who have served you in their lives. Lord, you know the prayers of our hearts, the needs and our desires. We bring them all and bear them all to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. After Paul's plea of reconciliation with the ladies in uh, Philippians, as he has called them out by name in the first three verses of chapter 4, we now see that Paul, as he typically does, turns from exhortation into application. And so the last few sermons here that we'll have in the book of Philippians is applying what Paul has called the believers of Philippi to adhere to. He wants them to apply the great call of unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the mission of the church and reconciliation found therein. He wants them to apply it. How do you apply it? Well, Paul gives us in this passage many action steps for applying it. But Paul knows that in the pursuit of unity, it is a very difficult task to obtain. And there might be discouragement in such a pursuit. Paul says in this passage there might be anxiety caused in the pursuit of reconciliation and unity in the church. And Paul seeks to remedy that anxiety with some action points, some applications. How do we resolve anxiety within our own lives? How do we resolve anxiety within our church? Stand with me then as we hear from Philippians 4. We'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Here is God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but anxiety can seem to be an immovable weight placed upon our chests. 
as you have maybe seen in our own culture in various studies, uh, young people today seem more than ever before to struggle with anxiety. I think the numbers rise to a fifth of the population at large, perhaps even a fourth, but a, a majority of young people, as surveyed, have said that anxiety is one of the things that they often think about. They are an anxious people. We all deal with anxieties in our lives. I have a habitual act of anxiety that I deal with as a male. I, I do, as every man in this room does, a pocket check from time to time, at least once or twice a day, maybe more. And the things I am looking for in my pockets, you know them, every man knows them, my phone, my wallet, and my keys. These are the essential to Scott's life. If he loses or misplaces one of these things, things go awry. And so throughout the day, as you add a, a coat, a suit jacket, more pockets, more problems, I'm always checking all my pockets. They're all here. I can feel them all on me even now. But when I lose one of those things, fortunately, I've had remedies for some of them. My phone has a little beeper. It will tell me where it's gone if I've misplaced it. I've added a tracking device to my keys, and so I'm no longer worried about that. But my wallet, that square rectangular piece of leather, when that is misplaced, my life stops. Does your life stop? My life stops. I'm, everything stands still for a moment, and I am overwhelmed with anxiety. Where has my identity gone? Am I going to have to call and cancel all my credit cards? Am I going to have to go get a new driver's license? Am I going to have to freeze all my accounts? That's where my mind goes when my wallet is gone. There's a long joke in the Edberg home that if I don't know where it is, it must be stolen. And so when my wallet is gone, it is as good as dead to me. Maybe you have a similar experience. That's anxiety. It's anxiety welling up in my own life. Maybe you have various anxieties within your life, but what does Paul mean by anxiety? That's what I understand as anxiety. What does Paul mean when he talks about anxiety? I've already tipped my hand a little that Paul is foreseeing perhaps anxiety welling up in the church, but when Paul uses the term anxiety, he actually has two different ways in scripture of using it. One is a very positive way, being concerned for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and one is a negative. It's kind of like cholesterol. There's both good and bad cholesterol. There's both good and bad anxiety. What is good anxiety? Well, in my candidating sermon in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is concerned for Timothy. Timothy was sent away with 2 Corinthians to be given to the Corinthians, and he has not returned in a timely manner, and Paul is concerned. He is worried about his fellow brother in the faith. Anxiety rises up within him, but it is a good concern he has. And you are reminded in that sermon that I preached just a few months ago that what does Paul do with that concern? This is how it's good. His mind is drawn in the triumphal procession of the Lord Jesus Christ. When concern wells up within us, when we respond rightly, when we have good anxiety, our hearts are drawn upward. They are drawn to Christ himself. Paul throws a party in his head as he is worried about the stakes of the ministry, both in Corinth but also with his son in the faith. What is bad anxiety, though? What is bad anxiety? Well, Paul maybe would reference William Ernest Hensley's famous statement in regards to this, I am the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul. I think I've said that a few weeks ago in Philippians. 
when we have that mentality, when we have a controlling nature in our lives, when we are unable to control it, when things come up and well up within our lives that we are unable to control and we desire to control them more than anything, that lack of control that we often desire is that bad anxiety. We must control it. And so we compensate. We try to overdevelop and over-engineer a life that we can control. In other words, bad anxiety is a hopeless stress, a stress with no end in sight. If we're honest, we then have both in our lives. We have both good and bad anxiety. We, we respond to some things by looking upward, and we respond to other things with hopelessness. We all have this within our lives, good and bad anxiety. Paul then hopes today how to turn that bad anxiety good. How do we transition bad anxiousness to good anxiousness, to good concern? Well, what is Paul dealing with? Well, let's think of the causes. What causes anxiety in your life? Well, Paul is quite intimately thinking of rejection. Paul was, as we saw in chapter 3, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man that that was in the in crowd, a man that was respected. And when he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was rejected. First, by those Jews that once revered him, but then as he'd gone into the pagan cities, he was rejected there as well. Think of Perhaps his own family, his co-workers, civil leaders, friends. Rejection was societal. He experienced rejection. The church at that time experienced rejection. It can cause anxiousness. We all want to be accepted. And when we can't control our acceptance, we can become anxious about it. That, ang- that, hostil- that rejection sometimes then turns into hostility. Think of Paul as he entered Philippi and in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas enter Philippi and what happens to them? They are beaten and imprisoned can lead to an anxious heart. Or how about finances? Sometimes finances can be stagnant. Paul often in his letters appeals for financial help. He doesn't know how he is going to be cared for. When we don't know where our paycheck is coming, it can be an anxious experience. But in this passage, I think particularly it's our relationships. When we have relationships that are at, are at odds with each other, we may want nothing more than to resolve them, and we might be unable to. It leads to anxiety. There are all sorts of areas in our lives that can lead and cause this type of concern. Perhaps your last doctor's visit, you got a report that, that you did not like, and it was not well. You're wondering how you can fix it, but there's nothing to do. Maybe you have had a job that you've had for a long-standing time, 10, 20 years, and you're wondering if this is the right way or path for your life. Maybe you've been let go from a job. Maybe inflation has caused financial disturbance in your own lives. You're unable to enjoy the things that you were once able to. Maybe uh, your children or, or maybe in your own life, your marriages aren't going how you thought they would. There's, there's distrust. There's discord. There is brokenness. Maybe your stance in society as a Christian is jeopardized. As we approach Pride Month in the next month, if you work in a secular uh, job, there is probably much celebration and you cannot be a part of it. And maybe your coworkers wonder why. All sorts of things can lead to bad anxiety. And so therefore, when anxiety arises in our heart, Paul wants us to train our minds. 
That's the main idea here, is to train our minds. How are we to train our minds? Well, we're going to start at the end of the passage today in verses 8 and 9. First, we must learn to, we must have a learning heart. That's what we see in Paul's final exhortation in this passage. We must have a learning heart. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, think about these things. Dwell upon these things in your mind. I imagine Paul in some ways kind of feels like a father that is sending his son off to college and he is giving a laundry list of things that he wants to tell him before he leaves, before he departs. Remember this, remember that. Remember to change your sheets every three weeks or whatever time is is appropriate. Remember to do your laundry. Remember to take care of yourself, to eat. Don't eat too much though. A laundry list of a parent to a child. That's what Paul is kind of doing here. He's giving a laundry list. Dwell on all of these things, these last minute things. This might be the last time I ever write to you. This might be the last time I ever have a relationship with you. I might be dead by the time you receive this letter. Remember these things. Remember all of these things. What are these things that Paul tells the church to remember? I, I could have probably preached a sermon on just eight I don't want to do that, uh, but uh, I could have, and it could have been very lengthy. I could go line by line through each thing. But Paul is basically saying the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, he commends the Galatians at the end of the the book in the same way. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. And Paul is referencing those fruits. Dwell upon then the fruits of the Spirit. Well, but what do you do with these fruits? You just think about them, you navel-gaze them, you just, you just dwell upon them uh, throughout the days. You just think, is it just about thinking? Well, no. Uh, we know that the dwelling is an active act. It, it is a work of the mind and the heart. A few weeks ago, I, I bought a door, and we have an odd doorway in our house, and so no door that is prefabricated could fit in it. And so we had to buy a door that was just a, basically a slate of wood. And so when you have a door like that, you have to prep it. You have to prepare it. And so I'd never installed the door. You know, the doors I had installed were already installed at one point. And so you just put them back on. This was, I had to drill a hole in the, the, where the doorknob goes. I had to drill another hole to where the latch would go. I had to line up the door with the doorway. I had to cut down the door. It was a lot of work, but I had to dwell upon it. Lest I waste $300 on a door and have to buy a new one. That's the greatest concern of my life at that moment. I have one chance to drill that two-inch hole for the doorknob. If it goes wrong, I have to buy another door. And so I dwelt long and hard, but that dwelling was active. I watched videos. I read uh, I read the list of things that I would need to go. I went to Home Depot or, or to Lowe's a few times to make sure I had all the things I needed. I was ready. I was prepared. Because I knew in that five seconds that I drilled one of those holes, it might be the end of that door. So I dwelled upon it. It should have been a five-minute job, but it turned into a much longer job as I raised up the nerves within me to make that one drill hole into the door. I dwelled upon it. I dwelled probably more than any of you would ever dwell on a door. I researched it, prepared. There's a lot of action and work going on. Paul is saying that we need to dwell upon the fruits of the Spirit in that manner, actively thinking through, what do these fruits mean for my life? What is joy, love, peace, patience? What does that look like 
in my life? How, how do I measure twice, cut once, as it relates to the fruits of the Spirit in my life? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9, he develops this even further. He says, how do you know, how do you dwell upon these things? How do you apply these things? He says this, what do you have learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things. How do you practice the fruits of the Spirit? And we've said it maybe mundanely. We, we learn them from one another. In a hyper-digital age, you might be tempted to do what I did with the door, go on the internet and find all the information you need. But Paul says, learn this from one another. Learn the joy of the Spirit. Learn the, the love of the Spirit from one another. Look out for those fruits in one another so that you can learn from one another. It's a quite simple application. You must have a learning heart in order to prepare your mind for an anxious experience, an anxious life as it is. You must have a learning heart. You must have a heart that is ready to learn. Notice what Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard from me, these are the senses of the human mind and body all coming together in the learning experience of the fruits here. Some of us are better at dwelling upon the fruits of the Spirit than others, and some of us are better at having only good anxiety when compared to bad anxiety. But how we grow in combating that weight of anxiety upon your chest is by having a learning heart, being willing to learn from the fruits that Paul exemplifies here. That's how you combat it. You dwell. You dwell not upon the situation that you cannot control, but you dwell upon the things of God. When I lose my wallet, all I can do is dwell upon the wallet being gone. Well, a learning heart, instead of dwelling upon that lost piece of leather, will dwell upon the things of God, dwelling upon the work of God. And so, the beginning then, how, when anxiety arises, how must you be ready with your mind? You must have a learning heart, a learning mind. And what are we to learn, though? Paul gives us two great points on how to learn. First, in verses 4 and 5, we need to learn the joy of salvation. How do you overcome anxiety? You do so by joy in salvation. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. This is not the first time Paul has said rejoice in the book of Philippians. This is the third or fourth time, depending how you cut it up. He has called these people to rejoice and to rejoice regularly. You see, I, I think that the situation has presented itself in Philippi to such a way that the disagreement and discord has robbed them of joy. It's hard when you're at odds with someone, when there is division in the ministry, it's hard to be joyful. And so Paul is calling them to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. My Bible teachers and scholars always said, if Paul ever repeats himself, make sure you take note. There's an emphasis there. What is the emphasis? That's for you to find out. Rejoice. What does Paul want us to rejoice in, though? That's what I ask myself. It's not uh, out in the ether. I'm just to rejoice with no purpose. Paul calls us to rejoice in something. And that something is found in verse 3, if you look down at the end, that their names are written in the book of life. Why can the Philippian church, despite its division, rejoice? It is because their names are written in the book of life. The book of life being the book that prescribes who is saved and who is not. 
since their name, since they can have confidence that they are saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have a great reason to rejoice. When you put in perspective then, as it relates to things and situations that rise within our own lives that causes anxiety, it kind of minimizes even the most serious experiences. Because when we think about the greatness of having our names in the book of life, all other things can peel away. When we lose control, we can remember, though at the very least, I'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ someday because I am his and he is mine. Our names are thus recorded. Each one of you have a reason to rejoice, whether you feel it in your heart of hearts or not. You have a reason to rejoice if you profess Christ as your Savior. You have a reason today to rejoice, even if today was crummy, even if getting the kids ready and and into the the car was a difficult experience and you're not feeling very worshipful today because of the mundaneness of getting the kids and everything ready to go, getting the meals ready for after church. Even if you don't feel joy, you can still rejoice. Because this rejoicing is found outside of ourselves. It's a gift of the Spirit to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. There has not been a lot of rejoicing in the PCA over the past couple of days. Uh, the Reverend Harry Reeder died in a car accident on his way home from a prayer breakfast, and Harry is a bulwark within the PCA, was, died in his 70s, so he wasn't young, but uh, he was found fatally killed in a car accident. The largest church, the the in the PCA, one of the largest, you always have to qualify, of Briarwood, he was the pastor there, Briarwood was the church that started the PCA. This is a no small congregation. And so when, Larry, when Harry left us, uh, I remember sitting back in my chair on Thursday and just weeping. A, a man that I had only known briefly but had been impacted by greatly has left us. And then on Friday, all, less than 24 hours later, uh, we hear the news of the Reverend Tim Keller dying. Uh, the other, maybe on the other wing of the PCA, that even more movement has probably been felt by Keller's death than even Harry's. The PCA has been in mourning. But what, what, uh, what Briarwood put out in a statement merely moments after Harry's death was this, and I found it to be of great hope. But we do not grieve without hope because we know our pastor is with his Savior and has received by grace the faithful command, well done, good and faithful servant. Hope joy. After hearing and reading many letters of tributes to these men, even in tears, I rejoiced with them. Their families are currently mourning, of course, but they are with their Lord. Their names in the book of life, there's a reason to rejoice. There's a reason for you to rejoice then too, that one day you will be like Harry and Tim Keller. You will be with your Savior and you will be laughing together with them. I imagine they are with some of their favorite authors right now enjoying everlasting life with C.S. Lewis, with Tolkien, with men like Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones having a greater time than our mournful sorrow nature seems to demand. Their names are in the book of life. And that idea of having the Christian's name imprinted in the book of life 
leads them to a reasonableness. Look at verse 5 with me. Why are they to rejoice in their salvation? Where does it lead? It leads to a reasonableness that is made known to everyone. That word reasonable is actually very difficult to translate, and it can mean a whole host of things. It can mean gentleness, graciousness, courtesy, tolerance. Uh, but in the legal sense in Rome, and Philippi, it, it would have meant that it would be one who lays down their own rights. That's what it would communicate. A person that lays down their own rights. Someone who has the knowledge of having their name written in the book of life would be one also that lays down their rights. You can see as we connect anxiety then to control what Paul is trying to teach. How do you lose your anxiety? You must give up control. You must be a person that lays down their own life, their own rights. If you think of it in the various translations, it, it is a person that makes their gentleness known to everyone, makes their graciousness, their courtesy, their tolerance known to everyone. They are a person by their identity that humbles themselves, that lowers themselves. And notice who Paul says to everyone. We might try to parse John 3.16 in an interesting way when all people are saved, but here everyone means everyone, both believer and unbeliever, both aged and infant, both McDonald's worker and president. We are to make it known to everyone that we lay down our rights for our neighbors. Again, loosening the control that we have on our own lives. One of the reasons for this, is, as Paul says, is that Christ is near. This means multiple things. It means that Christ is near both in the sense that his spirit is with us and so we can have strength, but it is also near in that we will soon be with him one day. I'm reminded in the book of Ecclesiastes that life is but a vapor. And though life seems long for all of us, it is actually rather short. And Christ is near. Christ is near in the sense he is present with us by his spirit, but he is near in that we will be with him perhaps even tomorrow. When I heard the news of Tim Keller, it was hard to even believe. When I heard the news of Harry, it was hard to believe. How could they be gone? But it is the same for us. We don't know what tomorrow holds whether that be literally tomorrow or the next year or the next 10 years. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Our lives are but a vapor and the Lord is near. And therefore, loosen your hand as it relates to your life. We might have all sorts of situations that rise up that make us lose sight, miss the forest for the trees, or we go tunnel vision because of the problem that is in front of us. We're so angry, so bitter, so anxious that we can't see what's right in front of us. Well, Paul's remedy is to remember that you are in the book of life. Your name is written as you profess Christ. It is a constant comfort and reminder, and in that you can rejoice. But the second, and I think even the most impactful two verses in the book of Philippians is found in verse 6 and 7. You all know it and memorized it well. The last thing we need to learn is the peace of God. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts. The most important way to combat anxiety in your life is to recognize the peace of God in your life. That the God of peace is the one that reigns over you. And in that reigning over you, we are reminded also within this passage to be a people of prayer in it. 
Uh, when things seem out of control in your life, is your first action prayer. That is the call of the passage. Uh, when we are anxious, what are we to do? Paul says to pray in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We are to be a people of prayer, and we are to be a people that pray for everything, every little thing. If you could grade your prayer life today, how would you grade it? A, B, C, D, F. I don't want to know um, personally right now, but in your own mind's eye, what, what would you grade? Why, why is it lower? I'm assuming. I'm going to assume the worst. Why is it lower than it should be? Why is it lower? Well, it's probably because you've taken in the culture around us. Uh, the, the sixth sola that was never invented for a reason is sola bootstrapa. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's not a sola for a reason. Because we are not to be a self-independent people. Our culture says that that's the way to life. I only help people that help themselves as a favorite in my own home. No. We are to be a people that recognizes that we don't have control. But there is a God who does. And we show Him and even the culture and our church around us that He is in control by our prayers. That we are dependent upon Him. We need Him. And therefore, we must go to him in prayer. There is no solo bootstrapper for a reason. Because we must be a people that depend upon God. He is the one, as this passage says, that makes all things known. Or we're to make all things known too. I'm reminded of my own children in this regard. Sometimes I have a shielded heart, even from God. I don't bear all things to him. Reminded of my children who bear all things to their father and mother. Uh, our children are so, so precious in the church because they have a lack of filter. And so you know what they think, whether for better or worse. You know what they think. Some of the favorite things my own children have said uh, to me is, Daddy, why was that big-headed kid so mean to me? Things, ways I would never describe another human being publicly. Um, or, Grandma, you're going to die. You know, things that... You know, I never say that to my mother. My mother is, uh, ironically, deathly afraid of death. But children, they could bear anything. They can say anything and everything. That is the temperament the Christian is to have before their God as they come to pray. Bearing everything, bringing everything to our God. A genuine transparency, as it were. That is the life of the Christian as they come to pray. To show their utter dependence. Sometimes we perhaps shield part of ourselves when we come to pray. Bear all that you are to your God. When you're angry, when you're sad, when you're hurt, bear that to God as He is the one that could handle it. Well, why are you to pray? Because the passage reveals the most important thing of anxiety. It is because God is a God of peace. He is the God that upholds all of creation together. He is the God that calms the storm. He is the God that as you look out into the chaos of the sea is able to control and lull it to sleep. He is the God over all creation that will recreate. He is the almighty God. And because he is the almighty God, he is the God that brings about peace. This peace is a garrison for the heart of the believer. It is what protects the believer from anxiety. To be a people that recognize the peace of God. Uh, the, the Philippians lived in a garrison town where there would have been centuries that guarded the, the town from all mischief 
and raiding. The Philippian people felt safe in their town because other towns who did not have, have guards could be ransacked and pillaged, but not Philippi because they had protection. It is the same for the Christian as it relates to anxiety with their God of peace. Their God of peace is the garrison that protects their heart from anxiousness. Paul, or John Bunyan says famously in Pilgrim's Progress, as, as Pilgrim is entering into the town of Mansoul, Mr. God's peace is the century that resides over there. And Bunyan says, nothing was to be found but harmony, happiness, and joy, and health, so long as God's peace manifested his office there. But, quite strikingly, when Prince Emmanuel was grieved away from the town, he laid down his commission and departed also. And it is a reminder that we enjoy God's gift only insofar as Jesus Christ is present therein. Bunyan is trying to communicate something about our own souls. That God's peace is the garrison that protects us from all attack. For the Christian that recognizes God's peace in their own lives, they are able to com be comforted by the, the fact that God is the one that stays up century in their own heart. Nothing mends an anxious heart than peace. Peace. You're anxious because your life is disruptive. You're anxious because everything seems out of whack and out of control. You need peace. And there's only one who can bring you that peace, and it is God himself. Maybe you feel like you're treading water in life. Maybe that's you this morning. I don't know. Maybe you're just treading water, feeling hopeless. You're your minds are constantly tunneled with anxiety. Well, the great hope, you must learn the thoughts of God through the, the, the gifts of the Spirit by learning the peace of God that resides in your heart. As Christ rules your heart, you should learn this great gift of peace that God gives you today. And if you don't feel it, if you don't experience it, pray. That's verse 6. Verse 6 and 7, wedded together so perfectly. A reminder that when we feel the lack of peace, when it seems like King Emmanuel has departed from our hearts, we are to be a people that go back to God in prayer, calling upon Him, return, that my century of God's peace might care for me. So when anxiety arises in our hearts, your minds must be prepared. You prepare them by having a learning heart and mind, learning the joy of salvation and learning the peace of God. That is the antidote for all anxiety. It is those three things wedded together in harmony. Whether our negative thoughts beget negative thoughts, which beget negative thoughts, dwell and throw yourself upon the God that is your peace. He is the one that offers you antidote as he has offered David himself antidote in his worst experiences. It's David who would say, draw me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, set my feet upon the rock, the rock of my salvation. Make my steps secure. When David struggles, when he, his assurance, as we read earlier, is faltered, he goes to the Lord in prayer and calls upon him, make my feet secure. As we close, I want to remind you of Kate Wilkinson's hymn a century ago, and she said this, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. You may be anxious here today. 
but you will not be anxious forever, for the God of peace reigns over his church. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your peace that you have given to us as an asset, as a gift to your church. May we use that peace to wield the fruits of the Spirit well, not only in our own lives, but the church as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.